0: of Vestal Goodman Kenneth. I almost hate to preach after that to ruin the day, but if I don't, someone will complain that I'm getting paid for doing nothing. So, let's take our Bibles and turn on that note of of hearing how great our God is. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. As we have walked through this Christmas season leading up to tomorrow, we have looked at this cast of Christmas and the people that God used in helping us understand the Christmas story and and what it means for Jesus to be born, this king who was king forever and the Lord of lords and uh, the one for whom is the only one worthy of our worship. And, And we have been able to learn some things from the people in this cast of Christmas, and we come today to the Magi. And I want to share a message with you today titled, the message of the magi. The magi, the wise men, they might be the most misunderstood group of all. In fact, before we dig into the text from Matthew chapter 2, we need to understand as best we can who these magi were as well as the king before whom they appeared. Not a whole lot we know about these Magi, these wise men, and what we do know, we know from Scripture, and anything outside of that is just our assumptions about it, but we do know that the Magi started to travel towards Bethlehem when Jesus was born. So if you've got them in your nativity set now, just bring them back out in June, July, and you'll still kind of be able to have Christmas part two, because they arrive at a house uh, several months after after Jesus is born. Now, we assume that there were three of them. Many people assume that because there were three gifts. However, if you look at historical narratives about this group of people and how they were living during that time, they usually traveled in schools. They they usually traveled, they would travel with their families. In fact, the the text that we're going to read, it's going to tell us in verse 3 that they troubled the Holy city. So three guys on a camel, probably not going to worry the city too much, but if you think about a whole caravan of these Persian, wealthy Persian astrologers who are coming into town with their clans and with their family and with their animals, it could certainly cause a disturbance in the town. These guys were uh, what we would think of as astrologers. They study the stars. They were from a region called Persia and their title of being wise men or magi indicates to us that they were part of a very elite class of people in that area. This was a, a priestly ruling class of Persians who were making this trip. And they're going to encounter a king by the name of Herod. Herod was a, an egotistical, narcissistic, maniac tyrant of a king. Herod was a Jew, but he was really nothing more than a puppet of the Roman Empire and the Roman government. Herod was so paranoid about losing power that he had his wife killed just in case she ever thought about trying to take power from him. If that wasn't enough, his his wife's family posed such a threat that he had his wife's mother and his wife's brother killed for the same reason. In fact, Herod had some sons, and when his sons got older, he got so paranoid that they would try to usurp him that he had three of his sons killed. Ancient historians tell us that Herod had a habit in which he would dress up like a commoner, go down into the villages and the towns where the people lived, listen to them talk, and if he found or heard anyone who was speaking bad against him, he would go back to his palace, get his uh, secret service detail, his henchmen, to go out and take the life of those who were speaking ill of him. Herod was concerned about one man, himself. Sounds like a politician, doesn't it? He was concerned only with himself half of everything that the common man had went to Herod. So if you can imagine the scene, a fisherman is out in the ocean and he's He's fishing. He When he would come to shore, as he got offshore, there would be a tax collector, a la Zacchaeus. There'd be a tax collector standing there and that tax collector would take 50% of what that fisherman brought in for Herod. He would take about 12 and a half percent for Caesar, the Roman head of state, and he would pocket a little bit for himself. Historians kind of calculate that for the average person, by the time they finish their uh, first fruit taxes, if they brought in a $100 worth of fish, they left with only $25 worth. How'd you like that tax rate for you? It's this diabolical, self-saturated, ego-inflated king who's about to have an encounter with a group of Persian stargazers as Matthew chapter 12 opens up. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, O you and you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Don't miss that. God is moving the star and then stops its movement. by another way, I want us to think for a few moments this morning about the message of these magi, the message that they teach us as their role in this cast of Christmas, the message that we learn from them. And there are three lessons that stick out to me that I want to mention to you quickly this morning. Number one is this: the first lesson that I learned is that Jesus came for all people. <coughs> Jesus came for all people. Now, the, the 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 Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the, the Gospels are written for a, each one has their own purpose in writing. Each one has an intended audience. The intended audience of the book of Matthew, Matthew wrote this book specifically for the Jews, and he wanted the Jews to understand that Jesus was the king who was promised in the Old Testament. Matthew's point in writing his Gospel was to show how Jesus, Jesus was the fulfillment of all these promises that the Old Testament contains. Knowing this to be the purpose of Matthew's gospel, it's fascinating to me that Matthew points out that the first people who worshiped Jesus were not Jews, but they were pagan wise men. See, Matthew does this on purpose. If you think about Matthew's gospel, it ends, Matthew chapter 28, ends with Jesus giving a message that says, go and tell. He says, go into all the world, all the Gentile nations, and preach the gospel. Go into these nations that these flags represent all over this room. Go to these nations with this message. And Matthew begins his gospel as he tells the, the wise men to come and see. He ends the gospel by telling us to go and tell. Did you catch that? It starts by saying, come and see this Savior, and once you've seen him, then go and tell, because Jesus came for all people. Hear me with my from my heart this morning when I say that the core of the gospel at Christmas time, the core of the gospel at Easter time, the core of the gospel at every season of life, the core of the gospel, 365 days. A year is that Jesus has come for the nations. He is not just a Jewish Savior, He's not just an American Savior, He is the only Savior. Amen. And apart from Him, outside of Him, there is no hope for the forgiveness of sin, there is no hope for the curse. That sin has brought us apart from him. And that reminds us, as followers of Jesus, and I hope over these weeks that you've noticed all the flags of these nations. It reminds us that our task is not complete until people from every nation have come to worship him. Until people from every tribe and tongue have come to worship him because he's the only way for eternal life. For those of us who live here, he's the only way for eternal life for those who live on the other side of the world. And God may not call you. He may call you, and I hope he does call you to go to the other side of the world. You should be open to God calling you to do that, to live your life for that purpose. But even if God does not call you to go to the other side of the world, I know for a fact that God has called you to go to the other side of your street. And the other side of your neighborhood. And the other side of the aisle. I told our connection group this morning as we were studying together this is my belief that God does not do anything by accident. In fact, I believe, and you may call me crazy for believing it, but I believe from what Scripture teaches about God's sovereignty and His providence that when you go to Walmart, God bless you if you need to go this week, God bless you if you need to go this week. <laughs> but that when you go to Walmart, And you walk down the aisle, it's no accident that the person who walks down the aisle is that person. I believe God arranges things like that for divine appointments, for us to be his hands and his feet. Because the message of the Magi is that Jesus came for all people. Second, God is in control of all things. Jesus came for all people, but also the message of the Magi teach us that God is in control of all things. Sometimes you'll hear uh, preachers use some fancy words to try to describe God and his activity. And one of the words we use is sovereignty that God is sovereign. And when you hear that word sovereign, we're, we're referring to the fact that God has all authority, and ultimately, being in control and being over all things is God's responsibility. Now, a lot of the time, that sovereignty is behind the scenes. We don't see it. In fact, most of the time, when it's in front of us, in front of the scenes, we don't see it until much later. But the sovereignty of God simply means that God is in control. God is sovereign at all times over all things. Even if it looks like God is not in control, God is. And our text shows us that. God arranged the constellations in a way that would lead of all people these pagan astrologists to be among the first to worship Jesus. Why didn't God just boom his voice down from heaven and say, Go here? Why didn't God send them an iPhone with a GPS? He could have done and do anything as God. Why didn't God just do that? Why does God move a star? Why does God move a star up to a certain point and then say, Star, stop? to remind us that God's in control of everything. In fact, it's not just Matthew who reminds us of this. If you go and read the Christmas narrative in Luke's gospel, Luke says that there was a tax upon the entire world. God taxed Called our census, God called for a census for the entire world just to move two people, Mary and Joseph, a few miles down the road from Nazareth to Bethlehem because there was a prophecy that this baby, this child, would be born in Bethlehem. <clears throat> now, why didn't God just whisper to Joseph, Joseph, get up? Go to Bethlehem. Why didn't God just send him a message, write him a note? Why did God cause the entire world to have a census to move two people a few miles down the road. The purpose wasn't just to fulfill a prophecy, but to show us, as Matthew shows us, that it's not an issue for God to flex his muscles over an entire empire to accomplish the fulfillment of one small part of his plan. Listen, my friends, God controls the heavens. He moves nations. He can manipulate governments. There is not one square inch of this entire universe over which God does not have complete control. Not one. Proverbs tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it, God turns it, wherever he will. If God Needs to rearrange the universe to accomplish his purpose, he will. <laughs> he will. Say, Pastor, what does that have to do with me? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> because if you are a follower of Jesus, listen. If you, this is this, we should be baptized. like this next part, okay? If you are a follower of Jesus. This is the same God who leads you and who is sovereign over your life. The same God who sovereignly arranged all the stars in the sky, sovereignly arranges every single detail in your life. Do you understand that? Everything in your life. Scripture tells us that God has the hairs on our head counted. Now, granted, I've made his job easier as I've gotten older. <coughs> and some of you, he ain't got to worry about some of you. But if God has all of that ability, we can rest in his sovereignty. The goal of God is to make you like Jesus Romans 8:29 and God Romans 8:28 will use all things to make you like Jesus for that purpose in the worst chapters of your life. God is in control. You can trust him. You can rest in him knowing that he's in control of every detail of your life to bring Jesus forth as you live for His honor and for His glory. The Magi teach us that Jesus came for all people, that God's in control of all things. Here's the third thing. The message of the Magi teaches us that Jesus is the only hope for all people. That He's the only hope for all people. When we Read our narrative of the Magi, and when we think about them in church, nine times out of ten, we stop at verse 12. (laughs) The message of the Magi includes a horrific event that, once we read it, it's understandable that we don't include it in our nativity scenes. In fact, it's an event that I cannot think of anything more horrific that what Herod does after this. Look back in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. When they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It is difficult to imagine a more horrific scene than what this text reveals. In the midst of this tragedy, in the text we just read, (coughs) Matthew quotes two verses from the Old Testament, and each one of those verses offers hope in the midst of heartache. In verse 15, he quoted a verse, he said, out of Egypt, I called my son. That's a reference to the exodus from Egypt, in which God took Israel out of the pain of slavery and brought them into the land of, of promise and peace. And that Jesus would come from this land of Egypt because he had to go and hide out there. And then verse 18. Verse 18, if you look back at the verse, the voice was heard in Rama weeping loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. <clears throat> That's a quote from Jeremiah 31:15. Where the prophet Jeremiah offers hope to the children of Israel after they were taken off in exile. Listen to what's happening. Okay, God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he brought them to the promised land. And when they got there, they sinned so persistently and so defiantly that God sent them into exile. A group of people who were called the Babylonians attacked their capital, Jerusalem, and they destroyed the city. And they took many of those Jews captive. They held them as prisoners in a place just north of Jerusalem called Ramah. At Ramah, (coughs) these families were sold into slavery. Separately, can you imagine the scene at Ramah when children are ripped apart from their families and husbands and wives are separated and those parents watch those children get sold into the hands of Babylonians and they have no idea what will happen to them or if they will ever even see them again. In the midst of their pain, Jeremiah spoke these words. It's not going to be on your screen, but I want to read it to you. What Jeremiah said after he said a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, a lot of etc., etc. He says in Jeremiah 31, 16, 17, he says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded. They, the children, will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants. Your children will return to their own land. (coughs) Matthew, watch me, Matthew applies that truth to this massacre at the hands of Herod. On one hand, this is horrible news as children all over Bethlehem were murdered. While that's taking place, Matthew says, there is a bit of good news, a bit of hope. And the hope that Matthew has in view is that a new king has been born. This king is better than Herod. This king will conquer death. He will not cause it. This king will heal our hurts, not induce them. This king, this newborn king, will reconcile us to God and to others. This king will reverse the curse. This king will bring back the children from exile and make all things new. The good news is that King Herod does not have the last word. King Jesus has the last word. Whatever Herod did, Jesus will undo. I know where some of you are because I'm with you. Two years ago on this very day, at this very time, I was preparing to preach my mother's funeral, who was here one minute and gone the next. And 32 weeks ago I stood by the side of the bed of my daddy and held his hand as he left this earth and went to see his heavenly father. A day is coming when God is going to take all that Herod intended for evil and overturn it for good. And on that day At that moment, it will cause the memory of the painful past to vanish like a puff of smoke because this new-born king swallowed up death in victory. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of this new king, our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. And the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. This weary, can I get a witness? Are you weary? This weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Because of King Jesus, there is hope in the midst of hurt, and life in the midst of death. The only place you will find hope is in Jesus. This world is the way it is because of sin. But a king has been born who is going to bring an end to all of that Because he bore the curse of sin in our place. And one day soon, he's going to put everything right. He's going to end all suffering. And that day could be today. And if he decides to come today, my vote is, come on. What would your vote be? Because this message of the gospel, is a gift from God to you, but that gift has to be received. You see, the Magi show us that the very best and brightest of people need Jesus. The shepherds from last week show us that those who are the most outcasts from society need Jesus. God will receive you as you are because he has died to make you what he wants you to be. A Savior has been born. Praise God. A Savior has been born. That Savior died for your sins. That Savior can reconcile you to God. He is a gift to all who will receive him. Have you received him? If you haven't, may I ask you this deep question, why? Why not? For the gift of Jesus to do you any value, he must be received. Jesus came for all people. He came for you. He is in control of all things at this very moment. This world looks like it's spinning out of control and from our perspective it may not but don't you worry one bit because that baby is no longer in a manger. He sits upon a throne and he's got it in control. And this king is the only hope for all people. In just a second, I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand and sing, and you're going to have the opportunity to, to respond to how, whatever God may be placed upon your own. Acts 4.12 tells us, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Have you received him? Have you, in prayer, confessed your sins to God? Have you in prayer repented of those sins? Have you asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? If you've never done that, we would love to introduce you to Jesus. During this time of commitment, you can come down and say, Pastor, I need to talk to somebody about what it means to (coughs) to follow follow Jesus, and we'll get you to someone who can help you understand what it means to follow Jesus. What is it that God's placed upon your heart today? Have you lost hope? you need to go back and be reminded that King Jesus has the final word and rest in his presence and power in your life. I don't know what God may be leading you to do. My only request has has ever been and will always be that you simply put your yes on the table. Let God determine what's on the table. But you put your yes on the table to what God's calling you to do. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he came into this world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. I'm grateful that he was able to do for me what I could never do for myself. I don't know what decision needs to be made by each person in this room today, but I pray whatever step we need to take, we would simply take that step and do what you have called us to do what you may be calling us to do even now. We surrender our lives to you because you're the only one with whom we can trust our lives. So lead us, guide us, and may we surrender to your will today in Jesus' name.